0: I invite you to turn with me to the book of James today, we'll be in James chapter 2, as we continue to look at what James has to say about how our faith in Jesus Christ works out in our everyday lives. And throughout James chapter 2, James has, has undertaken this idea of what it, what it means, what it looks like, that your faith does more uh, or does things in your life, that it has practical implications, that those who truly follow Jesus Christ portray fruit in their lives because they follow Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at this idea that those who do not, their faith is dead, there is no profit to one who says they have placed faith in God, but yet their lives do not show it. Because you cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ and not be changed. You are changed eternally, but you're also changed very practically here on this earth. And so today we look at the flip side of that and see this idea that, that faith in Jesus Christ is living faith. James chapter 2 verses 20 through 26 of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Lord, we ask now that you would calm our hearts and our minds that you would help us to put away from those things, the distractions that would so easily seek to set in, and that you would, over the next few minutes, very clearly and pointedly speak to us through your word. That you would take the powerful, living word of God, and you would pierce our hearts today. That you would help us to know what it is that we need uh, to seek with your help to uh, continue to eliminate those sins which we struggle with, and what it is that, that, that mirrors Jesus Christ, we need to continue to put on in our lives that we may see the fruit of, the, of our faith. But I pray for one who may be here today, who may be listening to this message, who is really wrestling with their faith, whether or not they know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would speak to them today, that you would show them clearly from your word how they can know for sure they would spend eternity with you, where Lord, we ask that we would walk out of this place different than when we came in today because we have heard your truth proclaimed, and you have applied it to our hearts. your name we pray, amen. Well, in my family, there is apparently supposed to be a male mathematics attraction that I missed. And you say, why do you say it like that? Well, my dad and my brother, the only other two guys in my family, are both math teachers. So I guess I missed the boat on that one. And while I don't care to teach math or spend time even thinking about what it means to take a calculus class, I do remember some lessons that I learned in math. And one of the things that I struggled with when I was first getting into algebra and those things is this concept of show your work. Anybody else ever struggle with that? You know? I mean, I I just didn't really understand, like it baffled me why if I got the right answer, I was being marked down for not showing how I got the answer. Because in the end, we got the right answer, right? What I didn't realize was that as I got deeper into those things, showing your work helps your teacher help you. Because if you come up with the wrong answer, they can look at that and help you understand how you, how you got there. Or sometimes, if you got the wrong answer, sometimes you got partial credit because you worked it all out on the paper. In the Christian walk... That phrase, show your work, has a different meaning. Our faith in God works out in our lives, and God through us shows what he's done to others around us. It is not that we are showing that we have earned salvation, it's not that idea, but it is God who is working in us to show others the change that is taking place. God's work should be constantly on display through our lives. And James, here in this section of his letter, is now going to show his work that he has argued for here. He has spoken, last time we looked at it, he's spoken on the subject of dead faith, that faith that has no works accompanying it should be concerning because faith, true genuine faith in Jesus Christ, always results in works done for God with God's help. And now, He will show the work of faith through two examples of living faith. And what we see here in this passage is that because godly works are the necessary evidence of faith, the presence of these works is glorifying to God's redemptive work in the life of a believer. And I know that's a lot about the word works, right? But that's exactly what we're talking about here. And again, I've said it before and I'll say it again because I think it's, it's constantly important that we remember this, that we don't get the cart before the horse here. The work that we're talking about is the work that goes on in our lives after we have come to Jesus Christ through faith in him. It is post-salvation that we should be seeing these things. And James emphasizes over and over again that if we don't see these things in our lives, if we don't see God's faith working out in our lives, we have very serious cause for concern because those who know God are changed by God and do, great, and do things for him. And so now, James is appealing uh, to two examples to illustrate this point of what living faith looks like. And the first one, we find in verses 20 through 24, is what I call the Father. And really what we see here is is James is going to undertake now some substantive, substantive teaching to illustrate this point. Uh, James has been going, has been has been carrying on an imaginary conversation these last few verses with someone who says, "Well, you have faith and I have works," or in trying to separate the two concepts. Because we said last week, that's the goal of, of of those who who say, "Well, we don't really need both. You can have one or the other." There's the goal of those who who say, "Well, I can gain my salvation by my works if I just do enough good things that allow." outweigh the bad things, and there's those who say, well, I don't really, my life doesn't really change just because I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I can still do whatever it is I want, and both of those are misunderstandings and misconceptions of the gospel. The gospel is faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation that changes your life, and so James is going to show via an illustration the necessity of faith and works and how it works out in in our lives. And he does so to one who himself is empty-handed. James says in verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? This idea here of one who is foolish is one who is empty-handed. The word foolish literally translates as empty or without fruits. James is speaking to one who boasts of having faith, but not works, and he is saying uh, that that you have nothing in your life to back that up, and he's pointedly calling this one out. He says, do you want to know, O empty one, O O foolish one, that that faith without works truly is dead? Faith has as its fruit works, and fruit is the evidence of life. Works are the sign of redemption. One commentator said it this way, faith that does not work, James is saying, does not work. It does no good. And to illustrate his point, James will go to two completely different ends of the spectrum. He begins here with the most revered man in Israel's history, the father of Israel, and his name is Abraham, the patriarch. Abraham was a pagan whom God called in himself to a new life in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. and You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. excuse me, God planned great things for the life of Abraham. And he called Abraham from the beginning to trust and follow him. The Jews, James's primary audience, automatically resonate with Abraham. The name of Abraham and his story were an utmost treasure to the Jewish people. Because it was from Abraham that their entire race had come. But it also has further application. Because when we read the name of Abraham, we may not connect with it right away because we're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. But you realize Abraham, the picture of Abraham goes far beyond the Jewish people. Because all who know Jesus Christ are spiritual children of Abraham. Because God said in this passage that through Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And how is that? Well, who would come from the line of Abraham? Jesus Christ. And to Jesus Christ, all nations of the earth have been blessed because from all nations of the earth, those, there have been those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. <coughs> Abraham, the patriarch of all Israel and the progenitor of the line of the Messiah, then showed his faith by his works. And James says in in verse 21 of chapter 2, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And we hit that word there, that in verse 21, that Abraham was justified by his works. We get a little alarmed. Because typically, that's not how we think of the word justification, right? When we, when we use that biblical word justification, we typically think of, of God's work or God's act of justifying when we see this word. And indeed, that's taught in scripture. Romans 3, 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul also wrote in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be, what's the word? Justified. And yes, positionally, no one is justified Declared righteous before God because of their works. There is no way to get to heaven and no way to gain new life apart from faith in the finished work of God's Son. The act of declaring one righteous, which is what we typically think of of justification, being declared righteous before God. That when God looks at our account, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that can only be done by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And James, when he says here that, that Abraham, our father, was justified by works, he is not contradicting this teaching. Because indeed, James has already said earlier that it is God alone who gives new life. In James 1.18, we read this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James says in this passage that the only way to be right with God is through the word of God. So, you might say to yourself, there must be another way that this word is used. And indeed, there is. Because you go back to the Greek and you look at this word, this Greek word not only is this idea of being to de- be declared righteous, but it also means to be show to show to be righteous, or maybe a shorter way to put it is to vindicate. It is the idea of showing something to be true or to confirm it to be so. Paul used it this way in Romans three, verse four. Certainly not, indeed. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Excuse me, one second. We were all fine until a few minutes ago, all right? Practically, one is justified before God by living out his new life in God and seeing fruit as a part of that life. So, positionally before God, you cannot be justified or declared righteous outside of God's work. That track? Practically, you are justified by living out that faith and living out the fruit of that positional place that you are because of Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. Being made eternally right with God is a one time occurrence. Living out that new life in him is an everyday journey. Salvation is what? Sanctification is ongoing. Abraham's new life from God came in no different way than anyone else's. And sometimes this this idea comes up or this, this question comes up. How did anyone in the Old Testament come to faith in God? How does did, how did someone in the Old Testament go to heaven? Because what is the big thing that hasn't happened yet in the life of Abraham? Jesus Christ hasn't died. So, how does Abraham go to heaven? How does Abraham come to faith in God? Well, he comes to, to a, a relationship with God just like anyone else. Because Abraham was not a perfect man. Like anyone else, he was a sinner. He was incapable of entering the presence of God. And when God covenanted with Abraham to bring him a child, we read in Genesis 15, verse 6, his response. And he believed in the Lord. He had faith in God. He trusted him. And he, that is God, accounted it to him, that is Abraham, for what? For righteousness. So where does the righteousness of Abraham come from? It comes from God. It comes from Abraham's faith, his trust, his belief in God. Abraham believed that God was who he said he was. And that God would do what he said he would do. He placed his faith in God and he found that faith rewarded. He was credited with righteousness to his account. Again, that is the act of God. Believing God always takes Faith, a complete trust. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark, but a humble willingness to take God at His word. When God told Abraham that we would make of him a great nation, <clears throat> there was one major hurdle in Abraham's life. Do you know what that was? He had no children. And it's been scientifically proven that if your parents don't have kids, you won't either. And so Abraham hears God say, I will make of you a great nation. But he has no children. So what does he have to do? He has to exercise faith, trust. God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I believe you. And though Abraham and Sarah were well advanced in years, they believed God's promise. They trusted him. And that trust changed how they lived. Now, Abraham and Sarah weren't perfect. We have recorded numerous instances of Abraham's sin, and and some of you have been in our Wednesday night Bible study where we've walked through the book of Genesis and we've looked at these things that, that happened in the life of Abraham. In fact, Abraham's faith failed at one point so much so that he committed polygamy and brought about the existence of the Arab nations who have been a thorn in the side of Israel to this day. But we also see that the general tenor of Abraham's life was one of obedience, because faith in God produces a life lived for God. And one day, that faith culminated. At 100 years old, the promised son, Isaac, was born to Abraham. This was the fulfillment of God's promise. And yet, several years later, Abraham is asked the impossible in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we read that. It doesn't make sense, does it? And if you've read the end of the story, just remove that from your mind for half a second, okay? Think about God's promise of the son, of Isaac. And now God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me. He wants him to engage in a horrendous act of child sacrifice. Yet Abraham a man who had walked with God, what does he do? I mean, we just read this, we get to the end of verse 2, and, and we think, what would we do if God called us to do that? Don't you think we, we'd have some questions? Don't you think we'd have some reasons? Look what, what, what Abraham did. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young women, or two, two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Amazingly, Abraham doesn't argue or barter with God, he obeys. Because a life of faith in God is a life of obedience to God. And as he arrives at Mount Moriah, notice what he says, notice his words of faith. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Abraham fully expected as he left that day that not just he would return, but Isaac would return with him. How can this be? Well, his faith informed his actions, his faith in God and who God is and what he had seen God done do, do for him, informed how he trusted God in the present. And his trust in God trumped his feelings in the moment. His life was changed, and he served the Lord and not himself. If Abraham was consumed with serving himself and not God, he would not have walked all the way to Mount Moriah that day. For he would have seen that as threatening the son that he wanted so badly. But instead, he lived out what God had done in his heart. And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, verse 19, gives us a little insight into Abraham's thoughts. It says, concluding that God was able to raise him up, that is Isaac, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham heard God say to take his son and sacrifice him. And Abraham, having seen what God had done in his life and having seen how God had miraculously even given them the son in their old age, concluded that even if it came down to it, God could raise Isaac up again from the dead. And so therefore, because he believed God and because he had trusted in God, he lived out that faith. And Abraham and Isaac ascended the mountain that day. And Abraham, we read it throughout Genesis 22, was prepared to kill Isaac just before God had stopped him. And this test of Abraham's faith vindicated Abraham's new life of trust in God. It justified, it showed it to be true. His actions revealed who he trusted in and because abraham trusted god fully he could follow god faithfully but it has to have it has to come from a full and complete trust in god and that act on mount moriah didn't save abraham that day god did not begin a relationship with abraham or allow abraham to enter heaven because he went to sacrifice his son to obey but what it did is that it showed others and generations to come exactly who Abraham was, a redeemed child of God. And though Jesus had not yet died for the sin of Abraham, one day Jesus would die and pay the price of that sin. And Abraham is declared righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. And this act and others in his life, James says, fulfilled the faith of Abraham. James says, do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. We see the faith fulfilled of Abraham, that that through this picture of Abraham, James shows really the inevitability of godly works in the life of the patriarch. Godly works aren't just a bonus in the life of someone who trusts in Jesus Christ, they are inevitable. Because Abraham believed God, his life changed. And Abraham's faith was brought to a complete end by his works. That's exactly what James means when he says, by this, that Abraham's faith, in the end of verse 22, was made perfect. That means it was brought to a complete end. And this, again, reiterates that it is not a works-based salvation. That is it is impossible for us to work our way to God. No, the works that were seen in the life of Abraham and the works that are seen in the life of every believer are the fruit of faith that is placed in God alone. The intended goal of every believer is to produce godly works. And you can very much illustrate this like, the, like a seed of a fruit tree. I don't know, there are some of you who probably who have planted seeds for your garden, maybe vegetables or fruit or flowers, but you, know, you, ever, you ever look at a seed and how small it is? But do you realize that in that seed is all the genetic structure, all the genetic makeup that is needed to reach the intended goal, to reach the, the tree, whatever it may be. And, and that seed can't be anything else than what it is. And it proves what it says it is, right? If you go to the store and you buy a little packet and it says, you know, peach trees. I'm from the south, so that's what I talk about, okay? What, how is it going to prove that it's a peach tree by the end when it produces fruit, peaches? If, if it doesn't produce fruit, something was wrong in the process, if it brings forth different fruit, well, it isn't what it says it was, and so it is in the life of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. The end goal of the life of a Christian is godly fruit. That's what we're striving at. That's what we're, in, in, in Christ, seeking to produce We need faith in Jesus Christ for the saving relationship, and that relationship has godly fruit as its goal here on earth. As Jesus taught in John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Very simply, there is no life outside of Jesus. There is no fruit outside of Jesus. And where there is no fruit, there is no life. And thus, Abraham's faith was fulfilled In his work. The faith he placed in God for his righteous standing resulted in his living for the Lord as was expected. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. We read that verse just a few minutes ago in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In this way, his faith was complete, but it was not in confession only, it was true and entire. You see, faith in God results in works, it's the whole package, it's not just part, and out of this life of faith comes an incredible testimony. Testimony. Abraham's life, Abraham's confession was fulfilled in what he did. And then God goes on, as he referred to him in Chronicles, to call Abraham this title. What does it say there in verse 23? He is called the friend of God. What an incredible honor and thought to be called the friend of God. What, is it, what does one have to do to become the friend of God? We typically understand the idea of what it means to become a child of God, right? To, to place your faith in Jesus Christ and be placed in his family. But, but there's another, this is a whole other idea, right? To be a friend of God. Well, through faith in him for salvation and living for him in that faith, after salvation, it is possible for us to be friends of God as well. You know why you you can say that? Because look what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. A relationship with God changes the course of your entire life. And you and I can be accounted as Abraham as the friends of God by what? By obeying God. But that doesn't come in our lives without God's saving and gracious work. And only then can we live for him. Abraham's works proved his faith. His whole life changed because he claimed a new master and Lord, the God of the universe. And so you see, James says, then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. A man is is proven to be a servant of God by what he does, not just by what he says. It takes both. And now, James looks from Abraham, the father, and he now turns us to Rahab, the foreigner. In the second example in verse 25 and verse 26. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? From a human perspective, does not Abraham seem like the supreme example? I mean, that for the initial Jewish audience and, and for the audience of James up until today, if ever there was one that we would look at as a human example of one that we want to be like, that we want to have faith like, we often say we want to we be like Abraham, right? But we must realize that God saves those from all walks of life. And so... We meet one who is Abraham's opposite, but yet really his equal. For on one side you have Abraham, the patriarch, and on the other side you have Rahab, the prostitute. That's what the word harlot means that's used here. She was immoral, a Canaanite Gentile at the bottom of her society, and she showed just as much fruit of faith as the revered Abraham did in his life. And so now we have to get a little bit of background on what's going on in Rahab's life. So after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites have reached Canaan. They have reached the promised land. They're prepared to enter there. And they are prepared to to begin the conquest of Canaan under their new leader, Joshua. But before this happens, they send two spies in to view the land, really to to pay special attention to the city of Jericho. And upon arriving in Jericho, these two spies found lodging in Rahab's home, for Rahab's home would have served as some sort of inn as well, going along with with her her livelihood. And it is there that she hides them when the officials come searching for them. And upon the departure of these two officials, or those officials, we read these words that she speaks to the two Israelites in Joshua chapter two, verses nine through twelve and said to the men I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you have, has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out of when you came out of Egypt and that you what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any, any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Rahab through her testimony, she testified that she and others in Jericho knew what God was doing for his people. It always amazes me that even Rahab, as she talks here, do you realize as she talks about the Red Sea, that they were, they were afraid of those things? That was 40 years ago, and people are still talking about it. They're still talking about what God had done for his people and then what he had been doing for them even throughout the wilderness wanderings. And the action of God stirred within the heart of Rahab, not just fear, but a desire to trust and obey him. Understand that as a Gentile Canaanite, Rahab would have known very little to nothing about God and the worship of him. For To whom was God speaking directly? It was to the nation of Israel. And and to whom was the nation of Israel to reflect God to, to everyone around them? Rahab would have never heard God's law being proclaimed. But Rahab lived in his world. And she had heard of his acts. And she longed to be right with him. And her reception and protection of the Jewish spies proved her trust in God. Rahab could have very easily turned those two men over to the officials that day, but she didn't. She recognized that God, the one true God, was going to be the victor, and she wanted to belong to him. And Rahab, as one who had undoubtedly served false gods, began to recognize that those false gods she had heard about, those false gods she had probably grown up worshiping, could do nothing to stop the one true God. And so she, by her actions, showed that she wished to serve this God. And those works did not save her, but what did they do? They evidenced her budding faith in God. And let's ask this question. Did Rahab perfectly serve God even by these actions? No. how many of you know the story of what happened when the officials came to look for the spies there at Rahab's house? Do you remember what she did in order to turn them away? She lied, right? Is lying sin? Yes. So is Rahab, even in this moment, serving God perfectly in the way that, she, that God would have her to serve him? Well, no, absolutely not. She's not. She is also an immoral woman. But what is she doing? She is coming to fuller faith in God. You know what we have to recognize? That those who come to faith in God don't get everything right, right away. You ever experienced that? Right? That is the work of God in their lives as they draw closer to him and read his word. In a book of quote-unquote Christian rules doesn't do someone who's come to faith in Christ any good because it's God's work, not man's. And you know, we look at the scriptures and we say, well, I mean, Rahab lied. Yes, and God never condones that, right? He never says, well, that was okay. No, what does he condone? He condones the faith of Rahab in himself. So no, Rahab wasn't perfect, but neither are we. What did Rahab do, though? She proved her faith in God through the actions that she took. And when the spies, they would give her, before they left, a scarlet cord to tie in her window. And they told her to stay in her home if she wished to be saved. And any who wished to be saved from her family. And you know what she did? She she did that very thing. Proving, once again, her faith. And one of the greatest things, the greatest thing that you can ever imagine happened in Rahab's life. She found salvation in God through faith in him. And we read... That God blessed her in her life. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, we read this this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, Obed begat Jesse. Do you realize that Rahab is part of the lineage of Jesus Christ? That she was grafted into the nation of Israel through her faith, that she is the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel, David. What an incredible life that was redeemed by God. She is included even in Hebrews chapter 11, and we read this morning from the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Profession of faith in God always leads to living faith evidenced by works. And so James now closes out this case study section with a few last words on the life signs of faith. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We have to understand, it sounds like a most basic fact that there is a great difference between a living person and a dead body. Once the spirit, James uses the word spirit here, the idea is the life of a person departs. He is no longer physically alive. You you cannot hold a conversation with him or expect that person to engage in their normal routines because they are dead. And this picture perfectly illustrates what faith without works is like. Faith without works is dead because it is not truly alive in God. What you do and who you are confirm what is the true state of your heart. And that is both a sobering and comforting thought. If you look at your life and you find in your life the work of God, if you, by the grace of God, can look back and see how he has grown you and how he, not, we're not talking about just maturing as a person, but, but growing in the Lord and seeing the fruit of what God, God, looking at God's word and seeing the fruit that he's done in your life, that's a, that's a comfort and a joy. Because there are times that we struggle with that. There are times, sometimes we just wake up and we don't really feel very Christian, as I said before. And we begin to wonder, do I even, do I even love God? Do I even, and we look back in our lives and we see the work of God as a comfort to us. And sometimes we wrestle with sin and God wants us to get things right in our life and we don't. And we begin. we talked about this last week, we begin to doubt our salvation because the assurance of our salvation is subjective to whether or not we're obeying God or not. Now, objectively, we are secure in him, Right? But, in our sin, we, we won 't feel that it 's a very sobering thought, though, because if we honestly look at our life and we see no change, instead we see a life of false fronts and rebellion against God, you have to bring yourself to ask that question, why is that? Why do I only see those things? Why do I not see real fruit? Why do I not see real growth growth? Because faith without works, James says, is dead. Living faith is evidenced by lived out faith. And because godly works are the necessary evidence of faith, the presence of these works is glorifying to God's redemptive work in the life of a believer faith and works as we said are are an inseparable concept and often we we view them as two separate things but in reality it's like two sides of the same coin if i could maybe just break it into a maybe a silly illustration here but but it helps me as i think about it it's almost akin to claiming to being a fan of a certain sports team if i tell you okay you're we're going to learn something. You're not going to learn anything new, okay? You, you know who I, who I cheer for. It's probably nobody around here. It's just because I'm not from here, okay? If I tell you I'm an Atlanta Braves fan, which is, which is accurate, and if I tell you they're my favorite sports team of all time, which is also accurate, what would you expect to be true in my life? Well, you you would expect that such a dedicated fan would know how the team was doing, right? Or every once in a while at least would wear something that supports that team or, or would at least watch, you know, some of the games. And we have this nice phrase that we use for those who don't do such things, though they claim to be big fans. We call them fair weather fans. You ever met a fair weather fan? Oh, they engage when it's convenient, And they claim their fandom when it makes them look better, but. And if you're a true fan, a fair weather fan really frustrates you, right? Because you held on when it was really bad, right? When it comes to God, there are no fair weather servants. You're either saved by faith or not. You're either living in his power and grace, or you're not. The gospel doesn't come with a convenience clause. Think about these two illustrations in the passage today. Abraham and Rahab, when when were these illustrations pointed out? They showed faith in the face of incredible personal difficulties. What is the illustration that James points to in the life of Abraham when he was called to sacrifice his son? What is the illustration that James uses in the life of Rahab when her city is an immediate threat of being destroyed by the just judgment of God because of their sin? True servants of God can live for God even under the most trying of circumstances because of their new life in God as evidenced by their works. It takes the work of God and salvation to see fruit in our lives. And when you look within, what is it that you see? Do you see a life of faithful fruit? And if you still lack a relationship with God, if you still don't know what it means to fully be his child and and even have the power of God to do these things in your life, then you can find hope and peace with him today. Because the gospel is the message of hope and peace in Jesus Christ. But God has given his children the privilege to minister for him on this earth. And the fruit of your life is a vital part of your walk, of your testimony, of your worship, of your life of faith. And as you seek to grow in the Lord, long for his work daily in your heart. So I would just ask us today to consider these things, to consider the the picture of the life of Abraham and the picture of the faith uh, in the life of Rahab and to ask ourselves, what is it in our lives that God is doing? What is the fruit of our faith that he is cultivating? And in those times of hardship, and those times of trial, we see that faith acted out. But if we don't see the, the, that fruit, to ask ourselves the question, why not? Perhaps you are a Christian who is very, very far from the Lord as Charles Spurgeon said, God will not allow his children to sin successfully. And I implore you that if you claim to know Jesus Christ, but yet you want nothing to do with the things of God, if you truly are his own, then you face serious judgment, my friend, because God chastens his children. But if you go through life, even if you claim to know God and you experience not the chastening of the Lord in your life, even if you, when you are far away from him, then you don't know, you truly do not know God. But you can you could know him and be settled with him for eternity and live a life that pleases him. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for its power to change our lives and our hearts. We thank you for the illustrations of people like Abraham and Rahab. Or they weren't perfect, they were faithful. We ask that you would challenge our hearts today. That you would help us to be burdened to live out our faith. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us where we go astray, where we wish not to live like you, that you would draw us back to yourself, that you would empower us through your Spirit to live in a way that honors you. God, we are so overwhelmed that here in this life you have given us the opportunity to live for you and that you have given us the opportunity to play a part in your kingdom and we ask that you would help us to take these things to heart be with us now as we go from this place and we go about the rest of our day and that you would be honored and glorified in what we say and what we do in your name we pray amen